It is Thursday, February 1st, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, a new kind of affordable housing is being designed at the University of Arkansas. It's going to come apart. It's going to be put back together. We're going to have community engagement out here. Um, It's a way for people to kick the tires with technology and the spatial configurations that are being proposed. Plus, bringing the big league club to Arvest Ballpark. We had four days uh, at the end of spring training that were open, um, and we just felt like Northwest Arkansas uh, has been such a great partner. Setting up a KC Royals Northwest Arkansas Naturals game in Springdale. And what were we talking about here 25 years ago? the World Wide Web. I'd have heard about it on the internet, I mean, through some friends. Some of the voices we heard on Ozarks at Large in February 1999. First, the news of February 2024. Rave Cultural Foundation presents Yuva Utsav, February 10th at Record Event Space from 5 to 8.30 p.m. The program will feature captivating performances of Indian Carnatic music and Katak dance, showcasing violin and Radangam, as well as Radha Veradon performing Katak dance. Tickets at ra-veculturalfoundation.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, we take a trip back to 1999. The hot topic a quarter century ago? The internet. Still a pretty big deal, it turns out. That's in our second half hour. First up today, this might sound like bad news, but perhaps it's comforting. There's no grand solution to affordable housing. At least, that's what Dr. John Folan will tell you. But through his work as the chair of the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas, he's doing his part to come up with at least a solution. A barrier of plastic orange fencing surrounds an odd-looking structure just north of Volwalker Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. Dr. John Folan removes a bungee cord that's loosely holding up a fence and leads the way to what looks like an unfinished home. The whir of construction happening next door at Mullins Library hangs in the air, but it's mostly halted at the entryway of a full-scale model of a new kind of home. It's being designed by the Urban Design Build Studio, a part of the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design. Uh, It's going to come apart. It's going to be put back together. We're going to have community engagement out here. Um, It's a way for people to kick the tires with technology and the spatial configurations that are being proposed. But it has a very simple form. Uh, The materials are very simple, but actually what's being done here is pretty sophisticated. If we can, let's like literally walk through it. Sure. Okay. Yep. We walk through a doorway into one of the two interior rooms of the house. The ceiling is tall, more than 10 feet at its lowest point with a strong angle upward. One room features a loft above it for sleeping. And a distinct element of this home is how much lumber is used and seen in its construction. Where we're standing right now is not a full-scale representation of what the home is. This is just giving you a sense of kind of this what the space might feel like with the wood exposed. Over the course of the spring, we'll be adding windows, 
there will be an exterior cladding that goes on the outside. The lumber on the north face will remain exposed and then we'll be adding the finishes on the inside. There's a stair that goes up to a sleeping loft uh, and again that's not the full size of the sleeping loft. It just gives you a general idea of what the, the layout is. The wood is a key component of this structure. Folan describes it as wave layer timber. Imagine the stereotypical drawing you'd see of an elementary student making waves, small rounded peaks and shallow valleys down the length of a piece of wood. Is it's a material that is shaped in a way that this meshes together like that. Um, and then there are threaded rods which go through it. There's no adhesives that are used. We're able to put this together without insulation on certain surfaces. It develops a weather-tight, airtight bond. Um, and that weather-tight, airtight bond means that when this building has completed its serviceable existence, it can be taken apart and these pieces can be used for other purposes. So it employs what's known as design for deconstruction principles. Um, which is something we've been working with for quite some time. We're working with this technology uh, through an exclusive license agreement with WLT Capital Oi, which is a, a group out of uh, Helsinki, Finland, collaborating with them, and this will be the first time that this technology is employed in North America. My gut reaction when I look at this, it's like a mixture of IKEA meets Lincoln Logs. It is. I, I would say that's a pretty apt characterization as well. The current structure on campus is only 54 square feet, but Folan says do not confuse this for a new kind of tiny home. I can understand thinking this is a tiny home being here. The width of the home will be a little wider than twice this width, so it's going to feel a lot broader. The length of the home is around 70 feet in length. So one of the things that in working with residents in the community we've understood is when they've been looking at the drawings and looking at the large scale models and other things that we uh, developed to get to this point, they've been saying, wow, I can't believe that how, that looks like a much larger house than I would have thought it was. So what we're trying to do is make sure that everybody has the amenities that they would have in a house but we're just looking at efficiency. So really it's an essay in design and it's not about trying to minimize everything. It's where do you find efficiencies and understanding how people occupy homes, how they use them in different ways, and then just providing universal spaces for that. This home, as cool and technologically advanced as it is, is more than just a class project for Fullen and his students. It's their attempt to help with affordable housing in Northwest Arkansas. He says there's really just three factors when it comes to the issue of affordable housing. It's labor, land, and lumber. And um, if you're going to address this in a sustainable and a responsible way, we have to understand and accept the fact that labor prices are going to fluctuate and they're going to be subject to what market forces present. Same with lumber. So you could say steel or concrete, but... The materials are going to cost what the materials cost, uh, and the land is going to cost what it costs, and if you're in an environment like Northwest Arkansas, it's going to escalate significantly. It can be especially hard for people looking to become first-time homeowners in a region where labor, lumber, and land are all three very expensive. 
The United Way has named a subset of households as Alice, Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. That is to say, people who have jobs but may have to decide between saving money for a down payment on a house or paying for childcare. In Arkansas, that's one in three households. Fallon says these homes can be built in higher density and on smaller pieces of land. The objective is to customize and modify to meet the needs of the owners while also being environmentally friendly, efficient, perhaps most important, affordable. I think the recognition of Alice is probably one of the most significant moments in understanding the contemporary housing crisis. We've actually been, the AR Home Lab and Urban Design Build Studio and Faye Jones School, we've been working on another home prototype with Go Forward Pine Bluff and the Pine Bluff URA, and it's targeted specifically for the ALICE program um, that they have been working on in collaboration with Simmons Bank uh, in in central and southern Arkansas. So uh, it's interesting that you brought that up because, again, it it further reinforces that this is a, um, it's a very tangled web, and these are all uh, related considerations. Another demographic to consider with these housing prototypes is Dr. Fallen's students. He says one of the advantages of this is having a finger on the pulse of the next generation of potential homeowners. There's always a discussion about, so who's living in the home? And Oftentimes, you know, someone will raise their hand and will say, oh, well, it's a single mother with two children. Or they'll say it's a nuclear family. But it's interesting, people who have a very firm idea of who the person who's going to occupy the home is. And what it does is it opens the conversation to, well, we've now constructed 30 different narratives of who might live there. And they're all going to live in there in a very different way. When it comes to the students themselves, members of Gen Z, he says their priorities are very different as well when it comes to the design, implementation, and location of the homes. Homeownership is not that important to a lot of (laughs) students. That's not necessarily something that they're concerned with. It'll be interesting to see whether that changes with time. You know, I think we've been seeing that trend now for would say the last 20 to 30 years where prior to that somebody may be as they grow up they have this vision of owning their own home and I, what we're seeing with a lot of the students is uh, travel experience there are just other priorities what I have found interesting is that after a period of time we are finding that adults further on in their life are coming back to that norm of home ownership. So it, it'll be interesting to see. We, we, we don't know. What Fullen does know about this generation of students is how they value the natural beauty of the state and their care for sustainability and the environment. One of the things that's emerged from that is, you know, do you really need a large home because so much of what's valued is actually outside and around the home. So if you can find ways to have the home define these exterior spaces that everybody appreciates, you're expanding the footprint without any cost. Um, And so I, I think that's been really beneficial in the process. While there's just 54 square feet of interior space in the prototype, 
A sliding barn door shows a spacious exterior. So it's not complete now. This, you know, this really right now, it's one of the significant components that's missing right now is we have a long bench and a railing system that goes around the edge of this deck. And the idea is that if there's a group of potential homeowners, they can sit there. We can present information to them about what the actual house would look like. And then we're going to work with virtual reality and other tools so that they can experience what those spaces might be like. It's going to be a hybrid of looking at drawings, seeing the physical materials, experiencing facsimiles of the space, uh, and then we hope to get feedback on that so that we can refine everything. One of the things that we've been looking at that the deck illustrates is and the advantage of using this material is you don't have to use brand new material for this. So we've been incorporating reclaimed lumber that we've been uh, diverting from landfill and waste streams and we're also showing how that can be used to develop patterns. It's kind of blending different. It, it really, it's, it's just a full-scale experiment at this point. You can find more details about the housing prototype, including renderings of the homes in a larger scale, as well as a video of my tour of the prototype on campus at our website. Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead on Ozarks at Large, we remember Ellen Gilchrist. I don't think analytically about literature, about reading it or writing it. I, I just don't think in those terms. I've been reading constantly since I was four or five years old. Since before I could actually read, I was reading. I mean, I was always reading. When I made the leap from pretending to read a book and actually reading a book, I don't know. That's later this hour. The Transgender Experience in Arkansas, or T, is a series of conversations with seven transgender youth, men, and women who reside in northwest Arkansas. T is a production of KUAF Public Radio, recorded in the Listening Lab. We ask our T guests to reveal their trans self-realization, medical integration, and social acculturation. You can follow T, the Transgender Experience in Arkansas, on listeninglabkuaf.com forward slash T-E-A. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin has been asked to review the behavior of a group promoting third-party candidates. Josie Lenora from our partners at Little Rock Public Radio has more. No Labels is a centrist political group designed to promote third-party candidates. It's listed as a 501c3 nonprofit. A separate left-leaning group called In Citizens United is concerned about the behavior of No Labels. They filed a complaint with the Internal Revenue Service saying No Labels is not operating as a nonprofit, as they are technically classified. Instead, the group alleges No Labels is functioning as a political party and acting to further their own financial interests. End Citizens United also sent a request to Republican Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin asking for their status as a tax-exempt organization to be examined. The Attorney General's office said this request is out of the scope of what the office does. A spokesman said they do not determine whether nonprofits follow federal tax law. It went on to say that there is no evidence no labels have broken any laws. Josie Lenora, Little Rock Public Radio. 
Northwest Arkansas National Airport saw record high inplanements in 2023, exceeding the previous record set in 2019. The number of passengers flying out of XNA was more than 991,000. That number is up about 18.5% from 2022. CEO of XNA, Aaron Burks, told the airport board of directors that they are estimating around 925,000 implements in 2024. Burks says this is a conservative estimate if the economy makes a soft landing, noting that employments are very dependent on the economy. The Arkansas Board of Corrections has named an interim secretary, Eddie Joe Williams, who served as a state senator from 2011 to 2017, was voted on by the board just three weeks after their decision to fire Joe Profery. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' spokesperson, Alexa Henning, says this action is a violation of the law. The Board of Corrections knows that it is only the governor who selects and nominates the secretary. Board Chairman Benny Magnus said after the meeting that Williams is meant to fill the position until Governor Sanders appoints a new secretary. Williams's professional career includes nearly 40 years working for Union Pacific, where he rose eventually to regional director of transportation. And the Antiques Roadshow has announced they'll be swinging through northwest Arkansas. The popular PBS show will be coming to Bentonville on May 14th. Tickets to attend are free, but pretty limited. Each ticket holder must bring at least one item to be appraised. And no, the crew will not appraise or record items that are largely or completely made of elephant ivory or rhinoceros horn. You can find a whole host of details about what you can and can't bring, what to wear, and much more about the 2024 tour by following the link on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Bentonville retailer Walmart said Tuesday that it is planning its first stock split since 1999. Simply put, that means the company plans to create more shares out of existing shares and in the process reduce its share price to make them more affordable to purchase. The ratio for this stock split will be 3 to 1. Company officials said the stock split would increase the number of outstanding common stock to about $8.1 billion from about $2.7 billion. Walmart shares will split 3 for 1 after the market closes on Friday, February 23rd. You can read more about that story online now at nwabusinessjournal.com. There's more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. 
They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. The Walton Family Foundation commissioned a report on Northwest Arkansas's top performing schools in career and technical education. It provides recommendations for advancing those programs and better aligning workforce needs and K-12 education opportunities in Northwest Arkansas. We've got that report on our website at nwabusinessjournal.com. For some additional insight, I spoke with Katherine Robinson. She's a program officer at the Walton Family Foundation. This report specifically was really trying to look at a couple of things. One, what is the quality of the current CTE or career and technical education program offerings at our schools? Um, and so when we're talking about quality, we're thinking about post-secondary credit, industry-valued credential, um, alignment with post-secondary opportunities so that when students go on to college or post-secondary education, what they do in high school um, is relevant. And then also workforce alignment, uh, which is sort of the second big piece of this, is looking at what are the workforce needs right now in Northwest Arkansas? And how does that compare with what we're currently preparing our students, the fields we're currently preparing our students um, to work in? So we were really just trying to use um, data and the research to really better understand that so that we can um, really think about what the region needs going forward. Well, so what were the findings? What did you, what did you find out about that alignment between workforce needs and, and what the, what the uh, programming available is right now in Northwest Arkansas? There's a lot of misalignment is what we found. We found there's a lot of misalignment. So um, just three of the region's top 10 completed CTE pathways are aligned with high-quality occupations in Northwest Arkansas. Um, and if you compare that, five of the top 10 completed pathways, those are the things that students are actually finishing in high school, are in agriculture-related fields, which only make up 1.2% of the overall workforce. So in, in many cases, students are being prepared for jobs that that aren't available in the region. The report's findings indicate that the top five completed K-12 CTE pathways in Northwest Arkansas are in agriculture. Healthcare, business management, and manufacturing are identified as the top three industry sectors in Northwest Arkansas with the most projected growth. There are currently students that are completing um, the CTE programs in, in high school in those areas. But again, it, the the quality of the programming differs from district to district, mm -hmm. and whether or not students even have access to those particular um, fields differs from district to district. So yeah. it's it's pretty um, scattered, I think is the right word, in terms of, of where we are currently with this. Right. What's something um, maybe that's tangible that this this research can impact? I mean, you've got the report now. You've You've talked with these education and job leaders. You know, a lot of times when you come out with these reports, you might you're talking about some pretty big philosophical changes. You know, big pro, big program program changes that are uh, going to take a big turn. What is something tangible, maybe, that you can push with this research that you could see maybe happen in the next ten to twelve months? 
That's a great question. I think there's a couple of things. One, um, kind of going back to the comment you made earlier about the, the old notion of the VOTEC programs. Hmm. I think the the mindset shift really does matter here. What we're trying to help help schools think about, help industries think about, is a new way of thinking about career education where we're saying students need access to hands-on opportunities. They need access to work-based learning opportunities, to being out, out and doing internships and building social capital and networks in their, the fields they're exploring. Um, but we're not saying that students shouldn't go to college, right? We still, the research still shows sort of nationally that like the return on investment in terms of your financial earnings long-term for going to college is, is a good one. And so how do we really help our brightest students have access to, and all, and all students really have access to these hands-on things that will prepare them for post-secondary success, whether that's college or maybe in some cases that's going directly into industry. Um, but we're, you know, I think the old VOTEC idea was a little bit like the students who aren't going to college maybe go into these trade programs. Um, and so that's, I think that's one shift is it is the mindset piece and maybe that's a little bit less tangible, but I think that really helps us collectively sort of have a North star to know where we're driving towards. Um, and then another thing is I think this research provides, um, some clarity for, for schools and for districts and also for industry around, the opportunity here. We heard, in, I mean, one of the really great things that was also highlighted in the research is even though there's this misalignment, uh, we see a lot of enthusiasm from all sides about people wanting to invest in this area. Hmm. And so how can we help facilitate or how, how can schools facilitate, how can community facilitate um, schools, uh, K-12 schools, post-secondary institutions, and industry all coming together around this current, now that we know what the gaps are, uh, we know what the vision is going forward. The research sort of shows that. How can we all sort of come together and work on filling those gaps and creating programs, creating internship opportunities, creating opportunities to invest in our young people that will not only be good for those for those students when they graduate, but really also good for the workforce because, you know, we all want um, – there, there are students here that, you know, can move into some of the job openings currently and projected um, if, we're, if we're investing in training them the right ways. And that is Catherine Robinson with the Walton Family Foundation in Bentonville discussing a new report out this week analyzing career and technical education programs in Northwest Arkansas. That story and the report are on our website at nwabusinessjournal.com. In other news this week, home sales last year in Benton and Washington counties were down 10.3% compared with 2022. That is according to data from the Northwest Arkansas Board of Realtors. Nationally, U.S. home sales last year were down 19% to their lowest level since 1995. Fayetteville attorney Jim Smith has been reappointed to a five-year term on the Arkansas Tech University Board of Directors. And Fayetteville native Meredith Brunin is returning from Georgia to Arkansas as Vice President of Advancement at Hendricks College in Conway. Brunin has worked in cabinet-level jobs in higher education in Florida, South Carolina, and Georgia the past eight years. Before that, she was the top fundraiser at Northwest Arkansas Community College in Bentonville and a member of the Business Journal's 40 Under 40 class in 2012. You can find all of those stories and more online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. 
I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. Next month, the Kansas City Royals will be in Springdale for an exhibition game at Arvest Ballpark to play the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. Major League teams facing their double-A affiliates isn't rare, but it's not that often such a game happens in the farm team's home stadium. This week, we asked Scott Sharp, the Senior Vice President, Assistant General Manager of the Royals, about the March 25th exhibition game. Well, look, every, every year you're, you're trying to figure out how to best line up the start of the major league season, um, whether it's finishing in Arizona and coming directly uh, to Kansas City, but but typically what you want to do, at least for sort of like the psychological well-being of players, is get them out of Arizona after spending six or seven weeks there and try to get them in a, a more familiar area in terms of like a major league operation or, or something there about that seems a little bit more like the normal day to day that they're going to experience for the next six months. Um, and then as it relates to our affiliates, like we've tried to do this. Uh, we've played a game in Omaha. Um, we had scheduled a game or tried to schedule a game in Northwest Arkansas in 2021, but with the pandemic and then, you know, pending um, minor league, um, you know, paused season to begin 2021 it it just didn't work out so when we looked at the schedule this year um, there was a little bit of a soft spot we had four days uh, at the end of spring training that were open um, and we just felt like northwest arkansas uh, has been such a great partner that uh, if it aligned and we were opening at home so you know we weren't going to arkansas and then you know, going to New York or right. going to San Francisco, it aligned from a travel perspective. Let's go ahead and do this and, and, and um, you know, sort of, you know, represent that strong partnership. You mentioned the relationship with the Naturals. And, you know, you think about those 14 and 15 teams that won the pennants, so many. And, and since then, you know, including Bobby Wood Jr., so many of these familiar, famous players came right through here. Oh, they absolutely did. And they love it. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, these players have nothing but, but great things to say about the facility, about the, uh, you know, the Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers area, and the people there. Um, I mean, it, it you know, obviously it, it, the proximity to Kansas City, it's it just it's such a great affiliate. It's such a great partner. And our, our players, um, they really enjoy playing there. They really do. You know, when I look back the history of minor league baseball, it used to be affiliates might be, you know, half a continent away. What does it mean for a team to have, you know, your top two tiered teams be pretty close, you know, Springdale and Omaha to Kansas City? Well, it's extremely convenient in in many regards. I mean, you know, obviously um, when the team's at home, the major league team's at home, and and either Omaha or Northwest uh, are home as well, you know, in – in case of a crisis, you can always get a player here really quickly. I mean, it's a three hour drive. I mean, we, we've called people up, um, or I guess down technically from Omaha, you know, it's a two and a half hour drive down from, from, um, from Omaha. We've made calls at three o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon, and they've been here almost at game time. So the convenience factor is big. The other part is, 
it's just great for the fan base footprint that um, we have affiliates, you know, within our major league footprint that they can see, you know, the Salvador Perez's, the Bobby Witts, um, you know, the Brady Singers when they are in that minor league stage and then see them, you know, move up to the big leagues. And, and really, I mean, they can take a two-hour drive and see them, see them play in the big leagues as opposed to, as you said, you know, a half a continent away. Finally, I have to ask you about spring training because for those of us who might be in a place in February where it gets cold and there's snow and sleet, we think, oh, how wonderful would that be to be in Surprise, Arizona, or, or for the teams that go to the Grapefruit League in Florida. You get to be there all through the winter. But I imagine at the end of six weeks, you're ready to get gone. You are. Um, I mean, it's it's Groundhog Day. I mean, the other part is you want the season to start, right? Like, you really want the games um, to count. You know, you want the competition. You know, you're 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 on edge. You know, towards the end of spring training, because as you're putting the team together, you want to make sure everyone stays healthy. You want to avoid injuries. You want to get to the starting line. I mean, because that's what it is. The end of spring training is really the beginning of the season. Um, and after five or six weeks, you know, it, you, you are ready to get out of there. You're ready to go see, um, you know, different faces. Uh, different uniforms, different cities, and, and the city of surprise is great. I mean, they, they're you know an unbelievable host during spring training, but but you are ready to get out um, after that period of time. Plus, you're ready to get back and see your family, and, right? Um, you know, get some normalcy to your life because spring training is Groundhog Day. I mean, every day you don't you don't know whether it's Wednesday or Sunday. Every day is the same. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the Royals in our best ballpark. I'm looking forward to the season. The, the rotation has been strengthened. I think it's going to be a good year. We're very, we're very happy with our offseason. Um, we feel really good about, you know, the, the veterans we've brought in. Um, we feel really good about the development of our young players. Um, we're really excited and no better place to kick it off than Northwest Arkansas. Scott, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Scott Sharp is Senior Vice President, Assistant General Manager of Major League Operations for the Kansas City Royals. The Royals face the Northwest Arkansas Naturals in Springdale Monday, March 25th. That game sold out. Tickets for non-exhibition games this season at Arvest are now available. This is Ozarks at Large. After approximately 150 days, January is over. For this first show of February 2024, a month that is actually longer than usual, we thought we'd look backward to what we were covering in February 1999. Ozarks at Large was on just twice a week then, and we filled much of our space 25 years ago with discussions of technology. In just the past few years, consumers have been offered faster computers, high-definition television, and cellular phones no bigger than an adult hand. Now you can add to that list a better soybean. Researchers in the South, including a pair at the University of Arkansas, are attempting to provide a legume for the new millennium. 
And it wasn't just cellular phones or advanced soybeans that had our attention back then. This is from a story about a new way for college students to buy or sell textbooks, the World Wide Web. I'd heard about it on the Internet, I mean, through some friends, but I didn't know anything about it. And then my survey of calculus teacher um, told me the exact website and said that it's easier to go to there because students save more. In February 1999, Ray Drummond, the jazz bassist, was bringing his all-star excursion band to Fayetteville for a concert. And he, too, in a conversation with us, was thinking about the future. Well, I think it's a a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, because it's more available, um, it is easier, you know, for for somebody to get get the music. But the, the other side of the sword is that you have to know about that. Um, and so to be exposed to that, um, in order to become knowledgeable about it, you have to do a little bit of digging and investigating. Um, so the possibilities are easier, but on the other hand, because there's because not only is jazz more accessible, but many other musics are more accessible as well. So in other words, you have a much greater diversity of products to choose from, you know, and, and you have to know that you really want to get involved in jazz. I mean, if, for instance, you're interested in jazz and you go on the Internet, you use a search engine and just say, say, you know, type in jazz and go. And suddenly here are all these uh, answers, you know, to your query. Um, and you probably, I don't know, probably have, what, over 100,000? And then you, you'd really have to then say, well, gee, what kind of jazz am I talking about? And, and so I, I think on one level it presents more of a difficulty to try to learn about it. But on the other hand, um, if you're willing to, you know, willing to dive into some of these topics, some of these cultural topics, um, it will be very rewarding if, you, you know, if you're able to, over the long run, have the patience to really... Um, kind of explore. Drummond does embrace the technology that can help popularize jazz, but he maintains there is no substitute for the live music experience. We could have a virtual event, for instance, where let's say the uh, Excursion All-Star Band, let's just assume that we had the, everybody had the equipment uh, and the hookup uh, on both sides, and here we come to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and instead of us coming in person, live, we could come live, but Instead of being on television on the one-dimensional, we could come in a, as holograms. And let's say that we were all in our own living rooms and we were playing together and we were looking at each other with monitors and listening. And, and the audience could have a holographic event. I actually believe this is going to happen. I mean, I don't think this is science fiction I'm talking about. I think this will be science fact probably in the next 25 years or so. But but that will be some kind of an event, too. But there there still is no substitute for the live, real, um, live musical experience. In Eureka Springs 25 Februarys ago, there was also discussion of something new, though not necessarily new technology. I traveled to Eureka to talk with members of CETA, the Community Electronic Trolley Association. They were advocating for an electric trolley system to be placed in downtown Eureka. We have... uh... We, we have congressional representatives and the Hutchinson brothers, and they're, they're supportive of this. So there was a lot of, um, we feel, support in Washington. And, and quite honestly, that's where we're going to have to find our support. 
is in Washington. Members of the Trolley Association say thumbs up in varying degrees have come from members of the Arkansas legislature, Senator Blanche Lincoln, Congressman Asa Hutchinson, and Governor Mike Huckabee. The governor presented CETA with a check to help pay for the feasibility study conducted by the La Mirada Group from Denver. Douglas says there has been little naysaying about the project, which he admits if it becomes reality, the project will create a few temporary problems. Now there are a lot of people, quite honestly, who's, who are kind of sucking their guts up because it's, it's going to be a, a pain to put the track down. It's going to be, it will probably be a little, uh, there will be some discomfort. I'm looking for the right words, but uh, the people are excited about the end result, we think, and uh, at least people that we have talked to, and we've talked to a lot of people. And finally, in February 1999, we marked the passing of Dr. Neil Compton, whose work helped keep the Buffalo River from being dammed. Then we shared part of our 1992 interview with him when he explained his first encounter with the Buffalo wasn't love at first sight. My first experience on the Buffalo uh, came about through a, a preacher, a Methodist preacher in our hometown named Stan Hayden. And he was raised over in that country, and he wanted to go on a float. And back day, in those days, they didn't do it like they do now. He went over there and uh, bought a John boat, a new one, which was heavy as lead, for $5. And we floated the river for three days and left it. We didn't bother about trying to take it home with us. And when we got down to the far end, we were sunburned and we were tired and we were sore. And I wasn't inspired to go back and do that again, just to tell you the truth. Some of the voices we shared with you on Ozarks at Large 25 Februarys ago in 1999. And thank you for lending your ears for the past 34 years that we've been on the air. Remembering Ellen Gilchrist today, the author, former University of Arkansas instructor, winner of the National Book Award, and longtime Fayetteville resident, died Tuesday night at her home in Mississippi. She wrote more than two dozen books, including a collection of short stories, Victory Over Japan, that earned her the 1984 National Book Award for fiction. In 1994, she talked with Rebecca Newth for our show. I don't think analytically about literature, about reading it or writing it. I, I just don't think in those terms. I've been reading constantly since I was four or five years old. Since before I could actually read, I was reading. I mean, I was always reading. When I made the leap from pretending to read a book and actually reading a book, I don't know. But I was satisfied with what I was doing, even when I was, could only read half the words in a sentence. This is so much a part of my life that I don't, and I never separate the forms of writing into genres. Although I know if I've been reading a lot of one thing, I know that I was thinking when I was going to do this interview with you today, I thought, you know, I wrote that book a year, I finished that book a year ago, I should go through and make sure I know the names of all the characters. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, there's, uh, there's always the cast of characters. And I was, because I read Shakespearean plays all the time, I was thinking that I could open up my own book and that there'd be a, you know, a cast of characters. And I thought, oh, no, that's right, that's Shakespeare. So, I don't know. The forms all get are all one thing to me. I, I know how to how to write in the different forms, but 
when when I'm inspired, the the form that I, that the inspiration should take always comes with the inspiration. I mean, if I want to write something, it's either a poem, or a novel, or a short story, or an essay. It it just comes all of a piece. Mm -hmm. Do you ever? But find that's because I've read all those things, so my mind has these little containers that it can fit an inspiration into. Well, we all do, not just mine. It's just that. I ply my trade. Do you write in in restaurants? Do you when you go sometimes I do. Occasionally I do, and it's an utterly charming thing to do. In longhand to mm -hmm. be able to just sit but somewhere. I, I think that there's not that much difference between writing in a restaurant and reading in bed and eating cookies at the same time. I have always loved to eat sugar and literature at the same time, to eat sugar and either read or write literature at the same time. Ellen Gilchrist loved reading. She loved writing. She loved talking about writing. She loved teaching writing. And she loved Fayetteville. She often mentioned Fayetteville in her commentaries for Morning Edition on NPR in the 1980s. Commentaries she recorded on reel-to-reel -reel tape at the KUAF studios on Duncan Avenue. She set her novel Annunciation in the town. And she offered details about her adopted town and her Faye Jones-designed house on Mount Sequoia for Oprah Magazine, writing, I like hills and vistas and hard-working people and fighting snow in winter and chiggers in the summer. You have to be tough to live in Fayetteville at certain times of the year. January and February and parts of March are bitter cold and seem to last forever. It doesn't help that I live in a house built by a famous architect named E. Faye Jones. He was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's and built my house the summer he came home from Taliesin West. The floors are made of stone and scored concrete. The walls are glass. It's so cold in this house in winter, I think I must be a lunatic to stay. Yet I do stay, because it's beautiful. In 1998, Ellen Gilchrist came to the KUAF studios on Dixon Street to talk with me about her then-new novel. I think that the beginning impetus was that I wanted to write a novel. My, one of my readers or one of my friends kept talking about it, and I said, why aren't you satisfied with the collections of stories? Why do you want a novel? And she said, because I want to be able to take a book with me to bed and have it there night after night. I don't want it to be finished in one night. And I kept thinking about that, and I thought, you know, that's the best argument I've ever heard for why I should want to write a novel. But a novel is a huge investment in time and energy and, and hope. It's an invest, investment in hope and self-confidence. And, um, I mean, you've got to really lay a lot of stuff out on the table, on, put a lot on the line to write a novel. You have to keep believing in yourself for a very, very long time. It's not difficult to believe in the world you're creating and the characters, or it isn't for me. Once, once I create the characters and I set them in motion and the plot and the characters come to me as a whole, and once I know the, know the world I'm creating, I want to keep writing the book because I won't ever know the end of the story. I mean, I may think I know what happens, but I don't know how it just because you know that Princess Diana died doesn't mean that we aren't still just insanely, absurdly curious about the details. And I feel that way about a, a fantasy world that I create. So, um, so that's why I wrote a novel. Do you have an idea when you start putting these people's lives in motions how much 
of their past do you know and how much of their past reveals itself to you mm-hmm. as you're writing? I used to believe, and I'm in a very rational mood, so I'll say things, I'll introduce this with I used to believe. I don't know if I believe it anymore. But when I was closer to being a poet, I believed that um, that I knew it all and that the act of writing was the act of discovering something that I already knew. Because always, when I'd finish part of it, most of the parts of a book, sometimes you make a mistake, but when you finish a part of it, I would say to myself, or I'd get the feeling, that's right, that's what happened. So that the act of discovery was more like memory than like some creating something out of nothing. And so I always felt, well, of course, I believe, I believe on my rational and irrational days that the mind is so much huger than we know, that our memory is so, encompasses so much more. Hell, for all we know, we could have the memory in our genes of everything up to the moment of conception of all of our ancestors. We do have those patterns. Surely we have those patterns. I conceived that idea or thought it up and ran it through a young friend who was in studying psychiatry at the time. When I was about 14, I first had that thought about the age that Sarah Connolly is. But um, if the mind is incomprehensible in its breadth and depth to our five paltry senses, then why wouldn't it be possible to think of a whole story? Especially, I mean, I'm 62 years old. Look at the memory store that I have just for my own life. If the only conscious memory store I have is only my own life, because, and I used to be interested in the idea, I guess I still will be if I start talking about, that our peripheral vision and our peripheral hearing, that everything, that we really are taking in so much more data from such a wider field than, than the conscious mind could bear. Ellen Gilchrist on Ozarks at Large in September 1998. She died Tuesday night. She was 88. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. There was a lot of tape from my tour of the housing prototype on the U of A campus that just couldn't make it into the story. But there's one bit I want to share here at the end of our show today. As uh, we maybe are possibly entering into warmer weather, I wanted to highlight one feature of the house that was really interesting to me, the exterior space. The sliding door exterior door moves all the way to the front of the house, making an enclosed porch. Here's John Follin again. Um, the other thing that we're looking at with this door is uh, porch culture. Porch culture is really important. 
uh, in communities and being outside. Arkansans love being outside. Uh, so the idea is that if this were open like a breezeway, you could have, so if the parents wanted to be in here, kids could be out there, and then they've got a separate outdoor room, right, that's created that way. So we're just trying to find different ways of using those things. So this really is going to be a, an experiment. Uh, it'll be out here for a year, and it's going to take on different shapes and shift around. And, and uh, one of the things that we've been looking at that the deck illustrates is, uh, and the advantage of using this material is, you don't have to use brand new material for this. So we've been incorporating reclaimed lumber that we've been uh, diverting from landfill and waste streams, and we're also showing how that can be used to develop patterns. It's kind of blending different. It, it really, it's, it's just a full-scale experiment at this point. That was John Folan. He is the chair of the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Paul Gatling and additional production help today provided by Stephanie Brock. We also heard from Josie Lenora from our partner station, Little Rock Public Radio. Daryl Sean wrote and performs our theme, The First Hurrah. Matthew produced today's program inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. Tomorrow on Ozarks, the new book, Men of No Reputation, Robert Boatwright, the Buckfoot Gang and the Fleecing of Middle America chronicles one of the most sophisticated groups of con men in American history. We'll talk with author Kimberly Porter about how large, large amounts of cash were swindled in the Ozarks at the turn of last century. Her book, published by the University of Arkansas Press, is available now. Our conversation will be tomorrow. I'll tell you this. Yes. If you watch a movie like The Sting and con men are lovable and they're good-looking like Paul Newman and Robert Redford, read this book. Okay. You, you won't have that same soft spot for con men <laughs> <laughs> that you might in most popular culture. My go-to when I think of con men is uh, Leo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can. Ah, right. I, I love that film, and, uh, and it doesn't sound like I'm – we've got differing things here, right? Yes. In that yes. same thing. Although – I will point out, and we'll talk about this on tomorrow's show, many of the people who lost money, Mm -hmm. they lost it because they were greedy. Mm. They had a lot of money, and they thought they were on the inside of a fixed athletic event, and they wanted more money. So not a lot of sympathy to go around in these characters, but it's a fascinating read. Poetic justice, in a sense. In in a sense, yes. (laughs) Uh, Quick question for you. Does your family open your presents on Groundhog's Day Eve or Groundhog's Day morning? We usually wait until the groundhog shows up overnight and we open them first thing in the morning. He better not see his shadow. (laughs) That's all I've got to say. It's been really nice. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well. FrostFest returns February 3rd at the Washington County Fairgrounds from 2 to 7 p.m. This outdoor beer festival features over 60 local and regional breweries, vendors, and food trucks, plus live music featuring Bonnie Montgomery, Stepmom, Sad Palomino, and more. Proceeds benefit area nonprofits. Tickets at fossilcovebrewing.com.